0: Luke chapter 18 is where we're at. Find your place there. This is the first Sunday of a new year, January 7th, and so I hope your first week went well. I hope that you're uh, accomplishing everything you've set out to do for this year, and and uh, your New Year's resolutions are on track. If they're not, then uh, you've still got time to, to get those back on the track and get them going again. But New Year's, start of New Year's... Uh, afford us the opportunity to make some changes, to to do some things that we wish we were doing differently, to do some things better, and to set new goals and commit to better habits. And many people do that, right? Many of you probably have done that this year, but I wonder sometimes what happens when the energy and the commitment that we have on the front end of a new year, what happens when that ball is dropped and things begin to uh, get kind of back to normal and where things are wearing off? How do our New Year's resolutions pan out? Truth is, we know that most New Year's resolutions fail to come to fruition. I came across uh, an article in uh, Forbes Health this past week, and uh, it it talked about a poll that they did back earlier in the fall, and so they polled a thousand adults in the U.S., and they wanted to know basically the American attitude surrounding resolution setting, and then they wanted to know what sort of priority was in those resolutions. And what they learned from this poll is that the 2024 top priority, the top resolution is improved fitness. And so that's different than last year. Last year it was all about mental health. And and so now the focus is on this year improved fitness. But really you look at the top five there's not much of a surprise there. Number one, it's improved fitness. Number two, it is improved finances right? I mean, we got them out of Christmas and we got to get our finances right. Number three is mental health. Number four is to lose weight. And the number five should be no surprise. It's improved diet. If you want to lose weight and you want to be physically fit, you got to improve the diet. And so those are the top five resolutions based off on this poll in Forbes Health going into this new year. Now, whether or not you have set a new year's resolution for yourself, I think we can all agree this morning that most of those resolutions will Fail. People are going to fail to carry them out, and so what would happen if we resolve to make a change in twenty twenty four, but we quit? Well, we got to get back on that wagon. And so this morning, I'm not preaching on New Year's resolutions, but I think this is a an easy way for us to think about what we're talking about this morning. That is faithful persistence. Because when you look at New Year's resolutions, or really any. Endeavor to to make a new start or a fresh start or to do things different and to better yourself. It comes down to what I believe is the crucial issue in follow-through, and that is, will I persist in this? Will I persist, put the due diligence in, do the daily work to get from point A to where I want to be in point B? For me to get there means that I've got to persist in. That means that I've got to get up, and I've got to put the work in, and I've got to be disciplined To accomplish what I want to accomplish. But for most people, here's what the statistics tell us most people will fail. Most people will not follow through on their New Year's resolutions. In fact, people even celebrate this failure. I learned this week that there are now days to commemorate people's quitting, people saying no to these resolutions. January 17th now is known as Ditch New Year's Resolutions Day. And so if you are one of those who set a New Year's resolution, you set a goal, you have an aspiration, you've started, but you've already quit, well, you can commemorate that on January 17th for quitters or or, 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 uh, ditch New Year's Resolutions Day. If you want to start that a little earlier, Quitters Day is the second Friday of January. So you can kind of get a fresh start on that and go ahead and quit early. People struggle to follow through. Why why is that? I believe it's because the idea and the concept of persistence. People fail to follow through on their resolutions because it comes down to whether or not they will persist in that endeavor. Persistence is an interesting word. It, It means a firm or obstinate continuance in a course of action, listen to this, despite difficulty or opposition. So this breakdown in persistence is is also not only what happens to or what hinders our uh, ability to live out our resolutions for the new year, it is also the same thing that comes in conflict with us in the Christian life. You see, God calls us to walk with him. God calls us to be close and clean with him. God calls us to be in fellowship with him. God calls us to, to have a hot heart for him and to live for him and to be gospel-centered and to share the gospel and to pray and, and to be a part of the church. And, and if we're honest, we struggle with that. Why is it that we struggle with this? Because we many times will fail to persist in this endeavor. Here's a statement that I've shared with you years ago, but I I believe it's a statement that that fits right in with this concept or this, this topic that we're looking at this morning, and it's this. Today's mighty oak is yesterday's nut that held its ground. Today's mighty oak is yesterday's nut that held its ground. We could walk around our campus today, and we've got some mighty Oaks. We used to have a really big one right out here on the corner until a couple years ago when it fell and we cut the rest of it down. I mean, it was a giant tree. And you look at that and you're thinking, how old is this tree? It's got to be at least 100 years old, maybe 200 years old. How did this tree grow to such enormity? Well, it grew day by day, little by little, persisting, moving forward until the day that it died. And so when we think about how a tree gets to that grandiose size, it happened because it held its ground. And if we're going to grow in our Christian life, if we're going to be all that God wants us to be and has called us to be, we have to hold our ground, persist in these spiritual disciplines, and move forward with the Lord. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about faithful persistence. Because Jesus calls us not only to hold our ground, but Jesus calls us to take new ground for his kingdom. And so to do that, we as believers must exercise faithful persistence. If you got your copy of God's Word, let's look at the 18th chapter of Luke's Gospel and begin reading in verse 1. Luke says, And he told them, that is, Jesus told his disciples a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray And not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. So that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. That phrase, beat me down, literally has the, the concept. It literally means to blacken my eye or blacken one's eye. Verse 6. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? We've been walking through Luke's gospel uh, for a number of months now. In the last several weeks, we've been in these... Two or three chapters that are really focused in on the kingdom. Uh, Specifically, we were in chapter 17 for the last month or so. And and so we see this concept of kingdom keeping or keep coming up in Luke's gospel. And so Jesus' disciples here are part, they're citizens of the kingdom of God. And we talked about as we ended chapter 17 back right before Christmas that the these disciples, as members of the kingdom, are in this already but not yet aspect of the kingdom. In other words, the kingdom of God has come. Jesus has ushered it in, and yet it's not it's not fulfilled or it's not been fulfilled in the second return of Jesus. It has not consummated. And so we can look at this and we can understand that we too as believers in Jesus Christ are part of the kingdom of God. Therefore, we live in this already but not yet concept to the kingdom. And so we can actually say that the kingdom has come in Jesus, and yet we are still waiting its fullness when Jesus returns. So then, we as believers, as we await this, this not yet part of the kingdom, we must persist in the faith. And when we think about that, we understand that this creates a relentless tension in our lives. So to enjoy the now of the kingdom while living in the not yet makes us very different from the world in which we live. Uh, Paul talks about how, in in Ephesians chapter 1, that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He talks about how we've been seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And so we think about that, we read that, and we see and understand that those are present realities for us today. Therefore, we're commanded to set our minds on the eternal. We're to set our minds on the not yet of the kingdom. This is a call to live out these radical, ethical uh, ideas and concepts of the kingdom while waiting for the king to return. If you haven't noticed yet, it's been two millennia since Jesus ascended to the Father. And he told the disciples there before he ascended that he was going to return, and yet he has not yet done that. And so we are in the midst of this kingdom while we are waiting its fullness to come in, and yet we're to not live and be so inundated with the world we're to live with an eternal perspective. So we're in this tension as believers living in this world. We're sojourners who are passing through. And so what are we to do with that? I believe that's the point of Jesus's parable here. How do we live in this tension? How do we live in this already but not yet when everything around us looks nothing like the kingdom and wants nothing to do with the kingdom? So Jesus understands this about his followers. He understands this about his disciples, and he's speaking to them because he knows they struggle with the tension here. And so he calls them and he calls us today to continue praying until he returns. He calls us to trust and to not give up. He he calls us to persist in our faith, to f- be faithful in our persistence. And so I want us to see this morning that faithful, persistent prayer is both the evidence of faith as well as a means for building it in our life. I want to share with you five truths this morning. I joked with the first service that, uh, um, we're going we're gonna to make it. We're going to get there on time, and I believe that we'll do that this morning. Though, um, yeah, I've got a clock now, and I didn't look at it the first service, but I'm looking at it this morning. I've got 26 minutes and 13 seconds left. So uh, <laughs> hit your horse to the wagon, and let's get going. Here's the first thing I want you to see this morning. First truth about faithful persistence. Discouragement is a reality and a real threat. D- discouragement is a reality And a real threat. Would you agree with that this morning? That it's easy to get discouraged in the Christian faith, it's easy to get discouraged. About the way the world's going. It's easily to get discouraged about your own life and family and and your hopes and your aspirations and your dreams and your goals. And I mean, all of us hopefully have goals and things we want to accomplish in our life. And we have an idea of what we want our family to be. And so when things don't work out the way we've dreamed and desired and wanted them to, we can get discouraged. We can get discouraged in this. I remember I had lofty goals uh, as a as all 20-year-olds do, right? I mean, I was going to have a doctorate at 30. Um, I was going to be the president of the Southern Baptist C- Convention at 31. I was going to be the president of the United States at 35. I, I don't know. I, I those sort of aspirations in my life, and here I sit at 45 and a half, and I've accomplished some of those, right? I'm, I, I'm not fully there, to, not even close there on some of those things. I'm still holding out for the president of the United States, right? Um, I think I could help the world if I could do that. But we have these goals, and when we don't um, achieve those goals, we can get discouraged. Or when life begins to be pulled out from underneath us like a rug, we can get discouraged. And so we know that discouragement is a reality. We know that the discouragement can be a real threat in our life. And so what we see here in verse 1 is that the Lord Jesus wants to teach his disciples the importance of persisting in prayer. And look, close us in on this. He tells us the reason for this parable is to show them that they ought always to pray and to not lose heart. He's concerned that they would become discouraged. The word that's translated lose heart is a term that describes a person who becomes so discouraged that he wants to quit. You ever felt like quitting something? You You probably have quit something at some point in your life, but what led you to quit? What led you to want to quit? It's because you got discouraged probably right? If you quit a job before, it's probably because you got discouraged because something that was promised to you was not delivered or the way you wanted it to work out didn't happen. And so you thought, man, I just want to get out of here. I'm going to go to something different. That's not always bad, but the reason you quit is probably because of discouragement. And sometimes we're tempted to quit the Christian life. Sometimes we're tempted to just kind of throw our hands up and walk away. Sometimes we're, we're tempted to say, no, I don't want that. I don't want to be a part of that. I, I believe there's a lot of church hurt today in America. It's because you had a bad experience. You had a bad a situation. Someone didn't treat you the way you should have been treated. They didn't treat you the way Jesus would treat you. And because of that, you become discouraged in your faith. And you've either been tempted to or perhaps you even walked away from the church for a season of your life that's a part of the reality in which we live. And so verse one here, as we try to understand the context, we need to know that it's connected back to the previous verse in chapter 17, verse 37, where Jesus here ends this discussion about this already not yet kingdom, by talking about, he says here, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. He's talking about, in essence, a godless society is like a rotting corpse, and where that rotting corpse is, there's a, an atmosphere that is slowly being polluted. And if we look around the culture in which we live, we can, we can sympathize with that. We look around and we see that the society, the culture in which we live, doesn't look godly, doesn't feel godly, doesn't sound godly, doesn't smell godly. There's a, there's a stench in the air of, of decay and death, of sin and the curse. And if we're not careful we'll fall prey to that, and we'll get disillusioned by that, and we'll get discouraged by that, and we will even be led off into uh, worldliness because of that. I think of Demas, who Paul mourned over because he loved the world more than he loved the gospel, and he ran to it. And yet when we pray, when we seek God, when we get our eyes focused on the kingdom, we're able to draw the pure of heaven, and it, <coughs> excuse me, and it grounds us and keeps us going. Discouragement also comes when we do not see the answer to prayer that we're seeking. Have you ever spent some time praying about an issue? Maybe it's a loved one who's struggling with their health or his health, and, and, and you've been praying, and you've been asking God, and you've been asking for a miracle, and that miracle seemingly doesn't come, and you get discouraged from that. Or you get discouraged because the answer doesn't come in the time in which you want it to come. So what we need to understand here is that the Bible rightly describes this. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we need this morning to recognize the reality and the real threat that discouragement can be to we as believers and combat it. This brings us to a second truth. Discouragement is checked by committed persistence. So how do we combat the discouragement that we face? The way you check it is through persistence. The way you check discouragement is having this commitment within you to say, I will persist in this. Jesus here tells this parable about an unrighteous judge and a widow. He tells us that the judge had no fear of God. He had no fear of man. So, in other words, this man recognized no universal ethic outside of his own self-interest. And on top of that, he had this mistaken belief that he would never stand before God's bar, God's bench, which relieved him of any burden to render just decisions. And so here's a man who lives for himself, makes judgments for himself. That's the unrighteous judge. The other person in the parable is a widow. Widows, usually in the Bible, are uh, conveyed as being poor, helpless. They had, she had no husband to stand for her. She had probably no family, and she most likely is very Poor financially, so she had no advocate. She had no way to help herself, and she had an uh, an adversary, and she's seeking justice in this situation. Now, this poor widow had three options. She could bribe the judge to get a ruling in her favor. She could threaten the judge to get a ruling in her favor, or she could make a pathetic... Plea in hopes that that would lead to a ruling in her favor. She chose really the only viable course of action for her, and she pleaded outside the court for justice day after day. Her hope was that the judge would hear that plea and be pushed into a corner so that he would bring justice to the situation. In that, she persisted. Well, Jesus's point in this parable was not to relate his believers to the widow. Nor is it to relate himself to the judge, because Jesus is not like the judge at all. Jesus loves the Father. Jesus obeys the Father. Jesus follows the wishes of the Father, right? That's unlike the judge. Jesus also loves humanity. This man had no respect for man. Similarly, the widow is not like you and I. This woman, this widow, could do uh, really, nothing that we could do. She came before the court, she came before the judge, and she's yelling. She, she's making a nuisance of herself, she's shouting. But we take a different position. I want you to think about the position that we have when it comes to us approaching the Lord. We as believers can pray. And when we pray, we have a Savior in heaven who is, as the Bible tells us, our advocate. The Bible describes him as the chief high priest who stands before the Father on our behalf. We also, when we pray, we can open the Word, and we can claim the promises of God. But this woman had no promise from the court. She had no promise from the society. She was empty, and she was alone. When we pray, we have the presence of God's Spirit who is leading us into all truth and guiding us in our prayer. In fact, the Bible even tells us that when we can't pray for ourselves, the Spirit prays on our behalf. The Spirit takes over and leads us and guides us. That's the access that we have. Perhaps the greatest contrast is that the widow came to this court of law. But we as God's children, we come before a throne of grace. She pled out of her poverty. We plead out of our riches in Christ Jesus. This poor widow persistently pleaded to the judge because this was her hope. But for you and I as believers, we can combat the threat of discouragement by persistently resting in and revisiting the hope of God's promises. That's what we've sung about this morning. We've sung about the hope that we have in Jesus. We've sung about the promises we have in Jesus. We've sung about how that helps us to stay grounded in our faith. Why? Because we have richness in Jesus Christ. And So by praying... We check the threat of discouragement. This brings us through a third truth. Here it is. God acts on behalf of his people because he's faithful and good, so Christians ought to trust him. Amen? God acts because he's faithful and good. I don't know if you needed to be reminded of that this morning, but I want you to hear that this morning. God is faithful and good, therefore he acts. That's what the Bible's telling us. And so our responsibility in that is to simply trust him, to believe him. We may not be able to see it. We may not, not, may not be able to understand it. But we must trust the Lord. If we fail to recognize the contrast offered here between the judge and Jesus, the widow and the church, here's what's going to happen. This is why I was uh, persistent in pointing these contrasts out. Here's what I don't want you to do as you read this parable. And that is to think... That we have to badger the Lord into a corner. See, persistent prayer, and we understand the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing, but persistent prayer isn't me just saying the same thing over and over and over and over again so that I get God into a corner and he's pulling his hair out thinking, if I don't act on his behalf, this dude's going to drive me nuts. That's what the, unright- the unrighteous judge is doing. But that's not the call on us as believers. So we must not begin to think that persistent prayer is nothing more than some sort of prescriptive argument or some sort of bribe to force God to act on our behalf. First of all, you can never do that. According to the Bible, God is not moved by anything outside of himself. So if we interpret this parable as if we are pushing God into a corner, we are overlooking the sovereignty of and the authority of God. Who are you to push God into a corner? First of all, you can't, right? And secondly, God would never allow it. You have no authority. You're not big enough to push him to a corner. Theologically, we refer to this truth about God as his aseity. That is, God exists. God works in the world without dependence on any of his creatures. Nothing outside of God constrains him. But you and I are totally different than that everything in this world has some sort of constraint on us, right? Told the first service, if you don't believe that, hold your breath for a little bit. See how that works out for you. You see, oxygen has a constraint on you. You have to have it. Food is something you have to have. Water is something that you have to have. We have to have certain things to exist, to live, to think. Nothing constrains the Lord, which means that God then is the perfect, impartial judge because there is no third party lobbying for his attention. There's no third party lobby that's there to try to win the argument, to move him to act in a certain way. No, God does what he does because he chooses to do it in his sovereignty and in his righteousness, his faithfulness, and his goodness. So his aseity compels us then to ask, why would God respond to the pleas of his people? And I believe the simple answer is because God is faithful and God is good. We need to be reminded of that today. God is faithful and God is good. The last two weeks, we've had three of our church families lose loved ones. It's never a good time to lose a loved one, but you don't really want to ever lose one over Christmas or around Christmas. That's where our three of our families are. We'll do a funeral for Vicki Coppage on Tuesday. And, and so I think about these families. I think for the Yarbros. I think about the good ones. I think about the coffages today. And, and where are they at? How are they feeling? What, what are their, what's their concept of God, their view of God this morning? I hope they understand God is faithful and God is good no matter the circumstances in life. God is always faithful. And he's always good. Therefore, we can always trust him. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, verse 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? So as believers, we faithfully persist in prayer because God is good, He's gracious and faithful. We never badger Him. We never try to shame Him into action. First of all, we can't, but that's not, this, that's not the characteristic of faithfulness on our part. God acts because He chooses to do so, and praise God, He does. That leads us to a fourth truth. God's actions are certain and swift. We see this in verse 8. God's actions are certain and swift. Now, think about this with me. We've talked about discouragement already a lot. Many times discouragement comes when we can't see God moving. Does that mean God's not moving if we can't see it? No. God's always acting. Does it mean that God's not answering your prayer when you don't get an immediate response? Here's what we want. We want God to write the answer in the sky. Have you ever asked him to do that? Or you, We go back to the Bible, we go back to Gideon, we put a fleece out. Lord, if uh, you want me to do this, uh, I want you to, to rain dew down from heaven, but I don't want the little piece of fleece here to be wet, and then the next day, what does Gideon do? Lord, uh, uh, you answered, but I'm not really sure if I heard you correctly, so uh, could this... Tonight, instead of raining dew on all the ground and leaving the fleece dry, could you rain uh, dew just on the fleece and then leave the ground dry, drown, ground dry? Second to my priest today, I'm a little rusty. Um, and so what does Gideon do? He's still not satisfied with all that, but that's what we do all the time. We want God to ride it in the sky, and then we second-guess second what we feel like he said to us. But God is not beholden to our requests like that. So we should never get discouragement when we can't see God's activity, but we should always believe God is acting because that's what his word tells us. We get discouraged when we see the culture around us deteriorating. And we know that the Bible tells us that, that God is in the transforming business, that the gospel changes people's lives. And we want to see that. But if you've looked around the culture of America today, we don't see very much evidence of that at all. And so that can discourage us if we're not careful. So what are we to make of the culture? What do we to make of, better yet, the Lord? Biblically, what do we know with complete assurance in situations like this? Here's what we know. God's certain, God's actions are certain, and they are swift. Look at verse 8. Jesus says here, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Speedily. That term means a short time. It means soon. It carries the idea of swiftness. Here's what it doesn't mean. Immediately. But that's what we want it to mean, isn't it? God, when I pray, when I ask you for something, when I need you to step in, I want it now. In fact, I wanted it three minutes before I prayed it. Lord, I wanted the answer long before I prayed for it. God, help me. But that's not what it means. What it means here is that when God does act, it will be certain and it will be swift. So we need to understand God's timing. Uh, Peter gives us some insight into God's timing. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and the first part of verse 9, He's talking here about the second return of Christ, and but the passage gives us insight in this whole idea of God's timing. He says, "But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day." The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. And so, what Peter's saying here is, God's actions are certain, and God's actions are swift, even if they don't operate on your timetable. God's actions are certain. So for us, that means we must faithfully persist in prayer. That means we must trust God for today and trust God for tomorrow. This brings us to a final truth. Here it is Faithful persistence is cultivated, it's cultivated. Going back to verse 1 again, Luke tells us the reason for what Jesus is going to tell us, and that, or tell the disciples, and that is they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Then in verse 8, as this all culminates, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So he's bookending Luke is, this parable for us. The disciples were in danger of being discouraged and losing heart. You and I are in danger of being discouraged and losing heart. And so Jesus asked the question, when I return, when the Son of Man returns, will I find faith on earth? How do we get to a place of faith when we know there's the threat of discouragement? The way we get there is cultivating our persistence, developing, growing in our persistence. Surely someone in this room this morning has wondered at some point in their life why the Lord doesn't immediately give you everything you ask for in prayer. Last week, some of you were praying. I know this because I know humanity. You were praying, Lord, if I buy this lottery ticket that's worth 800, I think it was what, 810 million or something like that. Uh, I saw it on the news. I didn't buy a lottery ticket. Um, in case you're wondering, but you're thinking, Lord, I will buy this. I, just, I pray you'd help me to, to win it. And if I do, I'm going to tie it to the church. I'm going to pay all the debt off the church. I'm going to give to missions. I'm going to do all these things. That was your prayer. And so you were asking the Lord, you're wanting that. And I'm just kind of having fun with that a little bit. And I kind of hope you'd have won because that would have been nice for us as a church. We could have paid all these things off, done some things. But we pray about things, whatever that is, and we expect and we want an immediate prayer. Man, wish it would work out like that, right? My kids wish that they would get everything they ask for, but they don't always My kids, I'm sure, especially my eight-year-old, she wished that we would allow her, because she sometimes asks for it, to eat candy right before she goes to bed, but we don't do that. Why is that? It's because as a loving father and a loving mama, we know what's best for them, and God knows what's best for us, and so he doesn't always give us what we want immediately when we ask it, and if you think about that, why would the Lord do that? It would be dangerous for us. You see, if God gave us every request that we asked for, immediately when we asked for it, we would treat him just like we would treat the genie in the bottle. You've heard the stories. You've seen the movies where a guy picks up a lamp. You know, I used to like the sitcom I Dream of Genie when I was a kid. In fact, I sometimes still watch it. You know, uh, Anthony Lucas, or uh, that's a football player at Arkansas, but... Anthony, Captain Anthony, Major Anthony, um, he finds the thing, he rubs it, and Jeannie comes out and she gives him all these things, right? We, we, we wish that we could have that, but we would treat God in the same way as a genie if He operated or allowed himself to operate in that way. And so sometimes when we pray, God gives us a clear no, right? God says no. Paul, when he was praying about a thorn, as he calls it, a thorn in his flesh, three different times, he specifically is praying to the Father to remove this thorn. And the answer was a no. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Sometimes when we pray, there's just silence there, and we wonder about that. And, and we, where is God in this? What is he doing? Well, sometimes that silence is a no. Sometimes that silence may be a maybe. Sometimes that silence is, I want this for you. I'm going to give this to you, but it's going to be down the road, or it's going to be different than what you think. It's going to be grander, greater, better, less we we just don't know we have to trust the lord in that but god always acts god always answers and sometimes he says yes many times he says yes but because it doesn't come in our timing we can become discouraged in all of this we must acknowledge that left to ourselves we're prone to be independent So if we were to have a God that would give us every single thing we wanted, what would it do? It would serve our purpose. We would become independent. We would become selfish. We would become more prideful, and we would become more autonomous. And that's what the great sin of humanity is. Adam and Eve in the garden, when they sought to eat of that fruit, they were seeking autonomy, separateness from God. They wanted to be God themselves. And if we had God, who was nothing more than a genie, we would be the God. So God doesn't operate that way. God, in his infinite wisdom, God, in his infinite goodness, answers our prayers and moves in ways that we don't always understand or make sense of. But in that, we trust him, knowing he is faithful and good. And so we have to grow in this. And that's what we're seeing here. If God is going to, when he returns, if Jesus is going to find faith on earth when he returns, if he's going to find faith in us, how do we get to that point? We have to cultivate it. We have to develop it in our lives. So there's no better way to cultivate a sense of dependence upon God than engaging in faithful, persistent prayer. Believing, trusting, praying for God to move. And so this morning on this first Sunday of a new year, hopefully you have set some... New Year goals and resolutions for your life, for your family, for your business, for your spiritual walk, for your church. Many of you have desired, you've committed to do some of that spiritually. Some of you have committed to reading through the Bible this year. What a tremendous resolution to to embark on, to say, I'm going to read through the Word of God. Why is that important? Because Paul said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. If you want to grow in your walk with Jesus, it's going to start with His Word. So you've committed to that. Some of you have committed to To pray daily. The prayer is not a, a regular part of your spiritual routine. And so you want to build that discipline. And so you want to pray more. You're going to pray daily. You're going to pray in the morning. You're going to pray in the evening. You figured that out for you. Some of you have committed, hopefully, to share the gospel weekly. And so I encourage you in that. But here's what I know about whatever the resolution is in your life. Most of you will fail. Statistically speaking, you will fail. I'm not saying that to discourage you, I say that to be the person who bucks the trend, right? I remember years ago, I had just graduated college. I'd become a youth pastor in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and, and I grew up under a pastor who's super disciplined, one of the most disciplined men I've ever been around. And he challenged us as a church every single year to read the Bible through. And I wanted to do that. I remember, I mean, this is like August of that year, and I was like, all right, I'm going to read the Bible through the next year. And so this is August, but I was not going to wait till. January. I began to read, building that discipline into my life. And the next year, I read the Bible through, and I've never turned back. Every single year since 2002, I've read through the Bible annually on top of all the other times that I'm reading the Bible daily in my life. And so that's a commitment you ought to make, but many of you will fail at that. So what do we do? We have to persist. Why? Why were you going to fail in your spiritual disciplines? Why are you going to fail in those aspirations that you have? It's because at some point this year you're going to fail to persist in that. So my encouragement this morning is to persist. My encouragement this morning is to lean in and try. But here's what I don't want you to hear me. T- I, here's what I don't want you to hear me say. Do it in your own power. Don't do it in your own power. Going back to the widow in this parable, she's all alone. All she can do is make a nuisance of herself and try to sway this judge to act on her behalf. But that is not what Jesus is calling us to do. He's not telling us to do something in our own power to try to persuade the Lord to do something. No, what Jesus is telling us here is lean into him. Trust in him. Remember, we have the promises of God. We've got the person of Jesus Christ. We've got the presence of God's spirit. We have his promises in his word. We have all of this at our disposal. And we need to lock in there and trust the Lord to help us to fight off the discouragement in our life. Amen? Amen? I hope that helps you this morning. I hope that encourages you this morning. I hope that blesses you in your faith and in your commitment to the, to the Lord's Jesus and to the family of faith that you're part of right here at Red Lean Baptist Church. Let's pray about this this morning. Father, we are grateful for this first Sunday of this new year and what it affords for us. Lord, as we look out over the next 51 weeks and all of the things that are going to come our way, Lord, there's going to be some things that will happen in families within our church that are terribly trying. They're going to be incredibly discouraging. There are things that are out there on the horizon that we can't even see and we can't even fathom yet that are going to be hard and difficult. And so, God, I pray that you'd prepare us individually as believers and as families and as a church family for those moments. And to prepare for that, Lord, we got to do the work today. we got to persist in the faith today. we got to persist in our walk with Jesus today. And so help us to do that. Lord, we acknowledge this morning that discouragement is a reality. We, we acknowledge this morning that it is a threat. But we also acknowledge that you are faithful and good. And so we trust you. We love you, and we thank you for Jesus. Father, I pray for us as a church this morning. And I pray for believers that you would um just help us to to be faithful this year. I pray for those who are committing to read the Bible through, help them, Lord, to to not be that statistic, but Lord, instead to finish and to finish well. I pray for those who are wanting to deepen their prayer life or expand their uh, evangelism in their family and in their workplace and in their neighborhood. God give them little wins that will encourage them to continue and to persist. And Lord, I pray this morning for the families who are going through some really hard times and may be wondering, where's God in all of this? I pray that they'd be able to see that God is right there in their midst. He is their refuge. He's their strong tower. Lord, as we looked at in small group this morning in Psalm 91, he is like that mother hen who brings the chicks underneath and hides them, keeps them safe. Father, I pray for those that need a relationship with Jesus. Perhaps even in this room this morning, there is a man, a woman, a teenager who's lost, as Paul says, in sin, cut off from God. I pray this morning that you would draw them to faith in Jesus Christ. As we move into a time of response, this time is yours, and we just trust your spirit and leading the spirit in our lives. Help us to make the decisions you would have us to make. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me across the room? We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.